lecture elimination. Uh, today is fourth. Today is uh, March fourth, uh, nineteen ninety nine, and I'm at the downtown deli owned by uh, Tony Knowles and Dave Rose, talking with Richard Bannon, who for many years was um, counsel, and I guess still is in a way, um, to the Nana Regional Corporation, and we were. Uh, talking about uh, the early years of the implementation cycle of ANCSA and uh, what happened uh, when the act got passed and then people had to start trying to make some sense out of it. And Richard was just uh, going to tell me about uh, something about the early years of trying to get it up and running in the Kachibu region, which is when I turned the tape recorder. Well, <clears throat> you had mentioned uh, the merger legislation. And the uh, need for it brought to mind an anecdote <clears throat> that actually caused us to seek the legislation. Uh, Nana, because <clears throat> none of the uh, 11 villages, including Kotzebue, which is the largest of the villages, had any idea as to how to approach all this. So Nana took it upon itself to work with each of the villages put together corporations. And John Schaefer and myself and Robert Newland went to each of the villages on at least one and usually two or three times, collecting the uh, shareholders, organizing the initial boards, explaining the entire process <clears throat> and we put together 11 corporations, one for each of the 11 villages in the Nana region. And we gave them all except Kotzebue because of its size, three member boards because that was the smallest board you could have under the state law. I believe Kotzebue had a five or seven member board. I can't remember now. I believe seven. <clears throat> and we then organized a seminar to be held in Kotzebue and we brought all of the 11 boards in, well, 10 of the 11 boards in, there. And Lance Anderson, who was with Pete Marrick and then had, uh, was still, I believe, with Pete Marrick at the time, myself, and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> I believe John Schaefer, uh, I believe the three of us were the ones, and we may have had a fourth member, an associate that worked with me, the name of Foster DeRitis may have been there, I don't remember, but in any event, three or four of us, we divided these groups in their smaller, we divided the whole group. First we had a session with everybody, and then we divided the groups and had training seminars as to what a board was, how a board operated, how it functioned, and we had some dry runs, and we explained how you would deal with resolutions and minutes and all the rest. And then we brought <clears throat> the boards back together in a, in a, in a room and went over everything with them, and then we ran the examples and then we had them go back 
on their own into another room and work one through. And without mentioning the name of the village, it was a three-person board, the chairperson was a nice, intelligent lady. But of course, the corporation was a totally alien, not even entity to her, I mean, it was an alien abstraction. And we were being assisted in our presentation by Nana, a uh, board member employee. It wasn't Reggie Jewell. I can't remember who it was now. I'll, I'll think of it eventually. In any event, we were explaining uh, how you go through the process of adopting a resolution. And this Nana man was helping me in the presentation and he said, well, no, they would explain it. They said, well, now what you need to do is make a motion, ask as a chairperson, ask is there a motion. So we put them on their own. And she had said during this presentation beforehand, the training seminar, she had turned to the employee, let's call him X because I can't think of the name, he said, X, what do I do now? And he said, well, now what you do as a chairperson is you ask is there a resolution, is there a motion to adopt this resolution? So we set up this hypothetical situation, and we started, and she faltered some, but got through calling the meeting to order and <clears throat> taking the role and announcing that there was a quorum, reading the hypothetical non-existent minutes from the previous meeting, and then announcing the agenda. And some of this we had written out for, because there's no need for these people to memorize this. Right. And then the issue came up and uh, I was acting somewhat the moderator, so I was raising the questions but not giving any answers. So I was saying, well, you know, I'd like to do so-and-so as a shareholder. And she paused for a while, and so finally I said, well, what do you do now? And she said, well, I turn to X and ask him what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> she assumed that in all the meetings, this gentleman would be there to help her. And we all had similar experiences. Uh, in a couple cases, some of the people in the villages had a person on the board who, because they had been involved in, in some other activity, had some, you know, could, had some background, but for almost all of them it was, it was an abstraction that was as difficult for them to understand as the black hole is as difficult for me to understand today. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what it is. The physicists tell me, but black hole is a black hole, you know. And so we got on an airplane and we started flying back to Anchorage and I had John Schaefer sitting next to me and I turned to John and I said, John, it'll never work. These people will spend every penny. We'll all have to have an account. And even if we use the Nana's account and we'll give them a discount, they're all going to have to have some kind of legal stuff. They're all going to have to have some type of little office. You know, they're going to have to have some type of record keeping. I said, you just absolutely won't work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody that had been involved in that seminar agreed. And, and the one exception, of course, was, was, was with Kotzebue, for sure, because there was enough people on their board who had been involved in enough things, whether it was AEVC or whatever entity. Okay, it's nice and deserved. And uh, so... 
we spent a year or two putting them all together and immediately when we got there realized that there was absolutely no and I may be wrong in this and I, I shouldn't say it but I and, and you can correct me but I believe that, that uh, a number of the villages in Chalice that were, were ripped off <coughs> because they didn't know what they were doing and the, the lawyers and the accountants the consultants, the advisors, the financial people, you know, whoever was involved, and, and they lost everything. Well, I don't know if you know, uh, or used to know, Hal Horton from Bruce Horton. I mean, Hal just augured in to... Pardon? Hal just augured into the beach at, over at St. Paul and killed himself like, about six months ago. Airplane? Yeah, uh, hmm. airplane crash. But, which is unfortunate because I never had a chance to... <coughs> put him on tape about it because he told me that, speaking of Chalista, that, that you know, which is, Chalista's obviously been a, been a disaster on, on these very issues, both at the regional and the village corporation level. Hal told me that he was at the first Chalista board meeting ever held, and what he did at that board meeting was to spend an entire afternoon explaining what a checkbook was and how checkbooks yeah. worked and this all had to go into UPIC and come back and you know and here was the regional corporation that, that behind the Clinkets had gotten the biggest hunk of dough you know I mean they got they, whatever they got you know, they got 100 million bucks 90 million bucks whatever it was they got out there and and they were cut loose you know not that like people are bad people or anything it just it was a totally you know you could have been talking about a bunch of astrophysicists started talking to us about the moons of Mars, you know, it's not that you and I are idiots, but we don't know anything about any of that stuff. Um, well, I, <clears throat> you know, Nana's been very, was very lucky for two reasons. And, and I'm talking in terms of getting himself organized and, and, uh, and the, the reasons, two reasons, one involves basically two people. That's reason number one, and that's probably the most important reason. That was Robert Newman and John Schaefer, because John, you know, one of the most intelligent, quickest studies, and a trained leader, but he's an innate leader. I mean, I don't. I've been in the Army and a few other places. You know, leadership can be trained to an extent, but you've got to have something to build on. And John's just a natural born leader. And he and Robert was an absolutely perfect combination. Robert held it all together. He was, to use the expression that might be taken the wrong way, the godfather, as it were. And John was the, uh, was the, was the engine. And the other fortunate thing was that Nana is relatively, compared to a lot of other places, it's a relatively cohesive, there's only 11 villages, and the farthest one is, depending on what size plane you're flying, 45 minutes to an hour and a half away. So it was possible for us, when we had the first group of village meetings so that they could get the first elected board, John Schaefer, Foster DeRitis, my associate, Lance Anderson, and I, four of us went out on a Saturday and a Sunday and did all 11 villages in two days in two days 
uh, with uh, <coughs> Ken Village. We we right. saved Kotzebue for the uh, for the uh, Monday uh, to have it Monday evening. So we did ten villages in two days between the four of us. Some of us did two a day, and a couple, one or two of us did three, and that did it. And I don't know, you know, that made it so easy to, to uh, and, and Robert and John understood the need for communication. So they went to the villages on a regular basis. always going out to the villages to discuss things. What was your perception uh, when you guys first went out there as to how much sort of regular people actually understood about what had happened and what all this was about and <coughs> what the deal was? With um, hardly any. And that's because <coughs> we didn't have a proprietary like we did right. then. Kotzebue didn't have a radio station in those days. The radio station came up there. I, you could look it up. I'm not sure, but we were doing all this without benefit of the radio station. We had what was called the Muckluck Telegram, <coughs> and, uh, and that was where whoever got an airplane going to Guyana carried all the messages that would come in. And they would they would take them out. Eventually, when the radio came in, then the messages were sent by radio. So most of these people uh, were not getting any particularly getting any information at all to speak of, except I mean, there's always one or two people, even in the smallest villages, who does some traveling in and out at least to Kotzebue, and they would come back with some information. And, and there was always an effort. <coughs> and did you see the Thunder Times out there at all? Uh, I don't believe so at that time, but the, the, the Northwest Alaska Native Association, which as you know is one of the nonprofits that was established, that was a template for how we organized the first man of board because the Northwest Alaska Native Association had 11 board members, one from each village. They served as the communication conduit so that when we I'm, I'm subject to checking that, but I'm almost positive that, that, there were, that, that there were 11, one from each village. If not, it was close enough so maybe they'd have two villages close together, there'd be somebody. So that there was always somebody who was in the loop as the settlement act was going along. And of course, this individual himself, or herself, is coming back and, and, and trying to explain verbally something that's incredibly complicated. And, as you well know, a yo-yo going up and down in terms of what was happening, and then after the act passed, you know, how much money was spent on a bunch of lawyers trying to figure out exactly <coughs> some of the more, not necessarily arcane provisions, what actually was intended. So we set up the NANA board the same way, that there would be, every village had a guaranteed board seat, and then we had two at-large uh, members, because variety of reasons, not the least of which was political. We had uh, Willie and, and uh, Frank Ferguson down in the state legislature, and we certainly wanted to have an opportunity for them to be in the board, but we also recognized that there were people that, uh, and, it, and I must say too, I, 
there was a it was a, a nod also to Kotzebue because it was it is so much larger in terms of shareholders than any of the other village corporations that by having two at-large members we gave an opportunity for Kotzebue to have a couple he quote a couple more members on the board and of course Willie and, and Frank were both Kotzebue residents and when we merged <laughs> unfortunately when we merged one of the trade-offs was uh, to give each village another board member, which is why the Nana board is now 23 as opposed to 11. And uh, in retrospect, that was probably a mistake because it's the board is big and it's expensive uh, to maintain. And frankly, we, we myself, John Schaefer, Robert, of course, I've relied on John and Robert more than anybody else, but we've all thought uh, stupidly, I think I would say, that <laughs> within a couple of years, the board would, on our recommendations, would downsize. But of course, you can imagine the thought of, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you'll be the board member that's downsized, I'll be the right. board member that stays. Right. We've, we've never quite, so this has been a, a topic for some, some discussion, but we've never made it, uh, they've never made it. However, it hasn't been all negative by any means, because and having board members out in the village has been very, very helpful. Did, so, just to be to be clear about it then, because I haven't talked to Shively or anybody about it, that the idea of AFN going to Congress to get the merger authorization actually came out and Nana was the driving force behind that, do you think? Oh, absolutely. We did it all. Okay. We put it all together. We wrote the legislation. We got Don Young. We got, we had to get AFM. Right. It was, as you well know, the rule of four. The, the state, the feds, the AFN, and then the person that was pushing it. And if, if it was just, just the AFN, then it was the rule of three, but it was the rule of four. And we drafted the legislation. And, um, well, to back up, what happened was we, figured we could merge without legislation. These were corporations. We got everything according to state law. There's no reason they couldn't merge. And one other thing you might ask me about, so in case I forget it, to talk about liberty, profit, non-profit, when we're deciding what to do. What we did was put together a merger. And Foster Derichus, an associate working with me, had come down from New York. Well, he'd been a lawyer for five or six years after he'd gotten out of law school. With a firm in New York, 40, 50 person firm in New York, that did nothing but corporate work. And they were, did a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And we retained a young, well, contemporary of Foster's, whose boss was very good, and, and Dennis Pinkerno was the fellow's name, and he spent his time in mergers. We put the merger together, we put all the proxy material together, we did a thousand things, working closely with the SEC, because we had to go through the SEC 
to do it. And the SEC had a lot of trouble with what we were doing. And the trouble they had was that they couldn't imagine what was going on. I mean, we had to educate the SEC people about what the Settlement Act was. We had to educate them about the villages. And of course, the more we educated them about the villages, the more concern they got, feeling that the villages might not exactly know what was going on. On the other hand, the SEC demanded, and I should back up on that, in, in all of the writing that we did, we would try to explain in terms that villagers hopefully could understand. And I say hopefully not as a disparagement upon the intelligence of the village person. I mean, this stuff is half the merger crap I read, I can't understand. I'm a lawyer. So we were trying to put this in something that approximated English. And the final moment, and we had proxy material printed up, and what we had to do was have a proxy package for each of the 11 villages, and then one for the corporation. So we have 12 proxy. These are full-blown SEC proxies, 80 or 90 pages. Had to show all the various financials. I mean, it was incredible. Eight and a half by 11. Um, had it done by a firm in Washington that specializes in printing proxy materials and all of this. The votes were, the meetings were to be scheduled to take place. The proxy material was going out. The SEC had the material in front of it signed off on and we had to go through problems like um, there was somebody in the SEC who had been in Alaska back when Kotzebue was a village of 500 and he couldn't understand anything at all that we would say about Kotzebue because he didn't realize he'd been back there in the war in 44 this is 73 or 70 then it's now 2,500 people at the last moment The Village Corporation for Kotzebue did a transaction, which was innocent, but under SEC rules that would be considered self-dealing. They bought a building from one of the board members without bringing in outside people to make a determination that this was due diligence and blah, blah, blah. And we get a telephone call and we come in and say, you can't go forward. You do your violating law because we've got this self-dealing situation we just found out about. We brought it to their attention because we figured they would understand. And we didn't want, you know, we pulled our hair. I wasn't a merger person. I knew what was involved and I didn't thought of self-dealing never passed my mind. Dennis Pinkernell said, oh God, we got a problem. SEC sees that as self-dealing. And you got to go through these steps. So, or we normally have to do these. So we figure, well, if we go, and you say, you know, if, if we go through this merger and we don't point that out, and something happens, if somebody gets upset, some lawyer comes, you know, we can have real problems. How are we going to, you know, we're talking about 
zillion dollars trying to scramble this omelet or do something with it. So we go trooping off to the SEC folks, <clears throat> stupidly figuring because we're coming in voluntarily to show them something with the odds of it being found out pretty damn non-existent. But on the other hand, you can't take a chance with what we're doing. And they pulled the plug on us. And we now got traced, I don't know how many <laughs> proxies. And I remember I spent Easter Sunday, John Schaefer said, okay, you got to come out here, we're going to have a session. And I remember I spent Easter Sunday out in Cotsville. Uh, I didn't want to pass. <laughs> and uh, board meeting on Monday or Tuesday, the people came in. I flew out on, on the Friday or Saturday, and I got out there Saturday, and the board meeting was scheduled for Monday, so the people would have to fly in Monday morning, the Nana board. <laughs> And they said, okay, you know, the villages have indicated, because the village boards had all said we want to merge. We'd all gotten their resolution. They said, okay. Please. We're going to get federal legislation. The typical John Schaefer. Okay, this is what we're going to do, Richard. We're going to get federal legislation so the SEC can't get involved. And you go back and do it. And you know, he gives you orders and that's it. And you go do it. <laughs> so we went back and um, we went back and then. We went back and, and um, we we went back and, and um, started to work on it. And what saved their bacon? Saved their bacon was that, the, of course, it went over to the uh, two interior committees. Right. <clears throat> the SEC didn't find out about it until the 55th hour. <laughs> and about a day before it was going to go to a vote on the House side or someplace, I can't remember, the SEC sent a letter over and said, oh, we think this is real bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the, the, the report had been issued, the hearing had been closed. I don't even think the SEC's letter made it into the hearing record. Yeah, I don't, had, I don't think I've seen it. And had they been, had they, <laughs> had they been alert, they would have come in and, and, and they would have used our situation saying, well, look, self-dealing and... and we would have then had to justify it on the record, which we could have done. Actually, uh, for the purposes of this tape, if somebody's actually listening to this years from now and you're interested in this stuff, that uh, probably one of the, the great characteristics of the implementation of the Claims Act was that, was that uh, for years all kinds of legislation relating to ANCSA that had nothing to do with ANCSA got run through the House Interior and, and Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee without other committees in Congress or the agencies that they oversaw knowing what was going on. Tax legislation? Right, and that if, <laughs> if you're doing research on this, that it was, it was the folks at Siri <laughs> who screwed, who the, screwed whole the whole system up. God damn their souls. <laughs> And erect all that, <laughs> Jesus. And uh, you'll have to go find out for yourself when that happened and how. But, but that's I think a, a really important point about how all this has worked. Don't you know, what they did was they ran something by that was a tax thing, and it right. got well. They overloaded this. They, they abused our collective privileges. Is what they did. They right, and they and and they upset the congressman from Chicago who used to run Ways and Means, Rostenkowski, right. and and. Uh, Wasinkowski just said, that's it. 
Right. And I've gone with pieces of legislation now, and you go talk to a staff person, and the first thing they do is say, well, whether run, this looks like it might, it just might possibly involve ways and means right. or something, and they run it by the other committees. Right. And these committees know nothing about what's involved. So we, our, <laughs> our pipeline for legislation got clogged. <laughs> Well, in any event, um, we got the legislation through, and then we went and, and uh, had our merger. Um, and Kotzebue voted not to merge. In fact, Kotzebue, I have to back this up, I was wrong, as I think, Kotzebue voted not to merge, so it was never presented to him. We did not have, when I said we had 11 proxies, we had 10, we had the, the we had 11, that's right, we had the 10 villages in Nana. We didn't have 12. And, and, and um, we needed uh, two-thirds uh, vote of the shareholders to merge. And there was, a, there was always a question about whether you needed two-thirds from each village or two-thirds totally, and whether you needed two-thirds from all shareholders or, or two-thirds separately from at-large and village shareholders. And, and, uh, those were, were uh, technical issues. We had one village that, that uh, voted by a majority, but not by two-thirds to merge, and all the others voted well up into the 70% or more to merge. Uh, it's hard to say in terms of the actual people that were voting, whether they understood merger any <clears throat> better than they had originally understood what a corporation was. And again, it's pretty pretty arcane and pretty abstract to expect. I, I suspect you and I could walk out and, and get the average man on the street who's got business experience in Anchorage and start talking about mergers and our team. They're not going to know. So, right. What uh, <coughs> uh, are you going to? Uh, mentioned something about the profit, nonprofit corporation thing, because I've, I've always, you know, it's, it, it seemed to me, you look at, at ANCSA and it's, it gives the villages the options, but on the other hand, they would have to organize a nonprofit corporation that issued them shares of stock, and everybody knew at the time that that's not how the Alaska nonprofit corporation code worked, and well, how did the, that I'll, let me I'll address that, but that, that yeah. raises another question, which was how to uh, make the uh, angst jive with the with the Alaska Code, and we did deal with that, and that's a question I'll, I'll come back to, but you'll have to remind me. <clears throat> Without getting into, and I don't even remember uh, sitting down and, and, and taking a look, actually, since Foster the Rights was a corporate attorney, and I wasn't, and he was the one that, that looked after the corporate side from a legal sense, if you will, what was or wasn't permissible and, and all the rest. And I don't even remember us getting that far along on the question of should these corporations be profit or non-profit for the villages in terms of what we will go out and, and, and recommend to them. We certainly will tell them the difference. But from a practical standpoint, none of us could see any advantage whatsoever in a nonprofit corporation <coughs> for the villagers. 
Um, as starters, of course, none of us could see the villages making a profit. <laughs> I mean, from a from an economic standpoint, and this again has nothing to do with with who's in the village. I mean, what is the village of Kobuk with 83 residents, 130, 40, 60 miles, I don't know what, due east to Kotzebue in the Kobuk Valley? How is it going to make a profit? Doing what? And you could do every village in the Nana region with the exception of, of uh, that for Kotzebue. And it had enough money because of its size, uh, and Kotzebue itself was a large enough uh, commercial, not commercial, but uh, communications center. And we could see absolutely no advantage in nonprofit. So when we went out, we explained the profit and nonprofit to them, but we could see no advantage. And so there were no. I guess the only the only thing I could see is is the idea of being a profit corporation. I think put stuff in people's heads about how they were supposed to behave that maybe they would have behaved differently. I mean, you know, Lee, Lee Gorsuch when he was uh, still with uh, whatever that Nathan Associates. Nathan, right? <coughs> he did. I don't know if you remember the old Alaska Native Management Report. Mm, right. <coughs> on an old article that he had written about the same time for the management report, in which he had analyzed exactly this issue and had said, look, you know, if, if a village like that takes the money it's given and it just puts it in the bank, doesn't do anything, just puts it in the bank or goes off and buys Coca-Cola stock with it and you let it sit there, the that, you know, in 10 years, you'll have a corpus, assuming X percent of growth, you'll have a corpus that'll, I forget what he said, will produce like 50,000 bucks a year in, in, in 1970s money, and that allows you to give, you know, 500 bucks a piece to every shareholder every year, and it all just sits there. And, but if you do anything, if a village that size does anything at all, you know, you put in a telephone line, you hire a guy part-time, you, you rent some space in the village assembly hall that you got to heat. You do any of that, and he ran the numbers out. Says you'll be you'll be broke in eight years. And and but people thought they were supposed to do something. I mean, oh, at least that's been my experience. Well, we I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on that. Uh, what we did a bit of experience, of personal history, professional history that you may, you probably know, or I'm sure you know about, but starting after three years defending criminals in the Army, mm -hmm. I went out and joined a law firm in Washington that did engine work, among other things, and I got involved. I spent most of my professional career representing Indians in the lower 48, and then when I started up here, representing Nana, and eventually representing also Indians down in the southeast, one of the corporations in the southeast. One of the clients that I had uh, worked for uh, was in Montana, and we were doing not only their general counsel work, but their claims work, Indian Claims Commission and the Court of Claims. And they had a major 
Court of Claims lawsuit over the fact that they were forced to take allotments and the unallotted land was sold. And all of the, they lost, it was against their will, and they lost all sorts of acreage. And the act that was done was, the 1904 act, the sales took place between 1910 and 1915. It's along that line. They also had, uh, lost a lot of money because in those days money in the treasury that was tribal money this fortune is money that wasn't lost it would earn simple interest not compound interest which violates all rules of fiduciary violates all rules <coughs> of common sense right. but it violates all fiduciary and we had a lawsuit based on that and there was precedent that we would recover on that because the court of claims had already ruled in the Menominee case that that, that was a, a, a violation of the trust. The tribe also had a hydroelectric site on lease to Montana Power Company. And under the settlement, under the uh, license, 20 years after commercial operation, <coughs> the annual charge that was paid to the tribes for the use of the hydroelectric site was subject to readjustment. And I was I was involved as the lead attorney in all these lawsuits and we succeeded when you added interest on to what Montana Power Company had to pay us eventually. We had to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. It came out to be a check for eleven million dollars. When you took the uh, land case, after you deducted attorney's fees, the check came out to just over $20 million. And when you took the accounting case, and after you took out attorney fees, the check came over to just over $6 million. So there was uh, 20 and 11 is 31 and 6, there were 37. It was Right around, there were a couple smaller cases. We were basically at $38 million. It was to arrive within the space of 18 months. We knew this now because the, the claims had, the, those judgments had to be appropriated by Congress, so that took a period of time. The appropriation was automatic, but although it's automatic, or I should say routine, it just takes time. Federal Power Commission judgment was a matter of we a couple of the tribal leaders and myself sat down and we did some numbers on our own and then we've got a couple of investment types to do the same for us we didn't talk about stock market because there was a concern about if you took the money and put it any place other than in the treasury, might it be taxable, uh, especially by the feds? So we said to avoid the issue of taxation, our assumption would be, and in those days, treasury was paying 6%. Our assumption would be that it is in a trust account in the treasury earning 6% compounded, 6% compounded and not taxed. 
We ran the numbers and we said if you take the $38 million, put it in the treasury at 6%, don't touch it for X years, it was only like six or eight years, 10 years, whatever it is, you will have enough money will have accumulated is at that point you can start making a perpetual dividend payment and never touch the 38 million dollars. It will always be producing it and what it will, right. will, always, will be producing enough money as if you'd paid out the whole 38 million dollars. Everybody in the tribal council, the ruling base, fantastic, fantastic. Fantastic. I think it was all paid out within eight, ten months of, <laughs> of, of when the checks came in. The same thing would have happened with what Lee Gorsuch did. People would have sat around, and the first time they had trouble paying their heating oil bill, and you can't blame them. I mean, they'd say, well, this is money is sitting there, and I'm cold today. I got bills today. I can't stay cold, and I can't stay, you know. So, the money wouldn't be put away. There's one exception. I explained to the NANA board the situation I'm just talking about, and they set up long before the state did a permanent fund, and it today has like 60, 40, 50 million dollars. Now they've dipped into it once or twice grudgingly. Oh, I don't know that they were grudging. <laughs> complain about, but they've had a permanent fund since day one. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I have uh, one of the things in, in this epilogue that probably people are not going to be very pleased with is I actually went through my clip files that I've kept for 15 years, and when when you get past the rhetoric, the actual practice from Heidelberg to Arctic Slope at the rank-and-file shareholder level has been, give us the money. Oh, I know that. Well, yeah, you know, I'm not surprised. Every, I mean, it has been relentless. And, and what you're seeing now, probably the, the, the thing that Shively and I are the most irritated about is, I don't know if you've been following this, Exxon Valdez trustee thing? No, I, I don't, you don't get enough news back in Washington. Well, you know, they put together this, this honeypot of 900 million bucks that... Uh, that um, Exxon gave the state and the feds that's run by these six trustees and then the enviros got to them and they put together the scam where one of the major things to send with the money is to purchase habitat in the spill region and since this happened uh, which is basically Kodiak and Prince William Sound, and village and regional corporations, Chugach, Coney all the villages, have been throwing themselves at the trustee council to basically sell all their land for fairly, you know, fairly decent money, 40, 50, 60 million bucks a whack. And yeah, I'll have one Oh, sure, and, and you can take that, and you okay. can take this, and, and uh, that's for, for for historical purposes, right. we're just cleaning the table here. Right. <laughs> but anyway, and then what's happened is that, notwithstanding all this talk about permanent funds and the rest of it, they're divvying it up all the dough right now. Ralph Aluska just got thrown off the Akiak, uh, Akiak board 
because they didn't want to do that, and, it, and they're the most recent guys where the, the dissidents came in, cleaned out the board, and, and the dissident board slate that was elected was elected on, give us the money now. I'm, I'm amazed, to interject, I'm amazed that as many of the corporations have, have been able to resist the pressure, because that pressure is, is, is uh, it's not new, but it certainly is, is gaining in terms of intensity, and has been over the years, but it was present very early on. Now, I, I have to speak basically for the Nana region, although we used to you know, I used to live up here in a sense. I used to commute up here for six, seven years until Mr. Sidley finally came on board and I was able to go back to a normal life. Uh, the, in the, and so, so I know, you know, we were constantly meeting with other lawyers, other accountants. We were constantly meeting with other board members, with other chairmen. Um, and there was a great amount of interaction. So what I'm about to say is not only Nana, but, but basically in the first flush, there wasn't that pressure. In part, I think, because there was a, a great amount of optimism that, that people, mistaken optimism, that suddenly we're all going to be getting big dividend checks. More importantly, there was, there was uh, uh, I think, more importantly for why it didn't end, there was, there was still a lack of understanding exactly what was involved. What did happen, however, um, which and it happened up in Nana. I, I don't say this as a, I mean, it's a, it's a fact of life. Uh, and I knew it was going to happen. I urged Nana and, and urged the board to be very careful about it. And I think the board exercised about as much restraint as we could from a political standpoint. <clears throat> I said, you know, you're going to have a people coming to you with wanting money for enterprises that aren't going to go anyplace. Most of them aren't. And you can't be the lender of first or last resort. I said, you know, if you want to do this, I think then you ought to set up like a subsidiary business, small business administration or something. And they were, they were quite good about it. But I know that there was pressure, and now and then they would they would uh, do something, which from a business standpoint probably wasn't the best thing to do. But then I've done things in my own life from a business standpoint that weren't wasn't the best thing to do. So this is not any you know this is I'm not it's not a black mark. This is but they managed to uh, withstand a lot of that. A lot of the villages and other corporations, at least as I understand, it's based on hearsay, didn't. I mean they were more inclined to. And of course, there's always the problem because in, in your villages, as you well know, I mean, everybody's related to everybody else, if not by blood, by marriage. And that's a tangled scheme. <laughs> a tangled scheme. Right. Well, uh, to sort of shift gears uh, in all of this, one of the things we haven't talked about that I wanted to ask you about was sort of the Interior Department implementation side of all this, because while you guys are up in Nana trying to and, uh, and all the rest of it, and I was curious if you had any observations about oh, that I, side I, of it. I'm 
Do I do indeed? <laughs> well, first, let me back up one step. Right. We had mentioned integrating the state law, right? And and this well kind of fits in with the interior thing also. There were, as you know, a couple outstanding uh, lawyers in Washington that were doing settlement act representing corporations. And of course, one name that that. Uh, is Art Lazarus, right. a, not only a fine person, but an excellent lawyer, an excellent, excellent lawyer. And, um, and this is not said pejoratively, well, well uh, Bill Van Ness is not a lawyer lawyer in the sense of Art Lazarus being a lawyer lawyer. Right. Bill Van Ness was, a, was, a, was an excellent counselor. And, uh, Art and Bill and myself and a couple other lawyers and also um, whose name immediately escapes me but a very, very good lawyer who worked with Ramsey Clark and he used to represent the AFM. Ken Bass? Ken Bass. He was, a, again, a, an excellent lawyer, lawyer, very good lawyer, lawyer. A lot of people find lawyer, lawyers, but they're important. Yeah. We sat down somebody sat down, may have been Ken for the AFM, and put together a laundry list of all the areas where ANSA collided with state law and where changes had to be made. And then working through the AFN, working with the state and the state legislature, those changes were made in the state law so that ANSA could work without these collisions. Uh, that happened in 72, 73. I suspect that today you wouldn't find that taking place in the right. state. Right. <laughs> uh, in any event, that's how we were able to, to uh, make the two mesh because right. the, the feds paid no, the feds, Congress paid no attention to state right. law, right. which is not unusual. That's uh, not only as it relates to ANCSA, but anything else. They tend to trudel off in the room. When, uh, because we did, the law firm did a lot of work, and I did almost all of my work involved Indians um, in the lower 48 before we started, the firm started representing Anna. Uh, I can't think of the gentleman's name right now, which is all right. Uh, the Associate Solicitor for Indian Affairs in 1970, 71, 72. Um, Came from Pennsylvania and had a background. Not Reed Chambers. No, 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 no. Reed was after it. Came from Pennsylvania. Had a background in coal. <laughs> yeah, he was the associate solicitor for Indian Affairs. And I invited him out to lunch to discuss. Brought him over. It may even have been before the Settlement Act was actually passed, or right after it was passed. Sat down and said, "Look." Here is this piece of legislation. Here's what it is. This is what's going to be happening. And you can imagine, nobody knows what's in And you know, all the questions that are going to come up. He was not even aware of the legislation. Mm -hmm. And I had urged him, I said, look, you need to find you should take somebody right now. Far be it for me to tell you what to do, but I am. 
you should take somebody right now, give them the Settlement Act. I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing, right. but give them the Settlement Act, sit down and say, read it, and understand that you're going to be the person that will be our... Now, the Settlement Act basically, like any other piece of legislation, once it passes, it becomes illegal. And yes, there are a zillion policy questions about how you implement it, but, you know, everything ends up getting run past the lawyers. And they didn't do that. And I think the feeling was, well, the regional solicitor office in Anchorage can handle it. There was a lot of, of uh, time and, and effort that probably could have been avoided had those steps been taken. But, again, you know, it's easy to sit here and second-guess right. and be out. He's probably sitting there and his staff's overwork now, and he says, where the hell am I going to get somebody to sit down and put in charge of this when I can't take care of the problems I got over here? Of course, that left then the BLM corridor curtain with a free hand. But, right. oh, absolutely, and that, that was a problem, except there was one person in the BLM whose name I cannot remember, a gentleman who was a, wasn't a lawyer. He worked out... Ted Bingaman? Ted Bingaman. He did as much as anybody to work out a rational method of land selection. Who got what, how you figured out allocations, because the allocations are not easy, as you know, between who gets what based upon how many people and all the rest. And he would, did a marvelous job, and there was another gentleman that worked before him or after him that was very good, whose name I can't remember. They were technicians. And they were damn good. And they they, they they worked hard. I think the gentleman I'm thinking of was actually started ahead of Ted. I think Ted was number was the second one along. The other gentleman he was telling me that he he had his son apparently was very mathematically oriented and he, his son was in high school. And this guy said, This is so fascinating how you work this out that he, he gave it to his son as a problem to help him so his son could could because he would work on it and he thought it was a great exercise for his kid who was going to be a mathematician mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and, and that helped a lot and then we had of course all the all the problems of what's navigable and not navigable and of course that brings in the state and, and uh, the one thing we didn't have fortunately um, we didn't have big active aggressive viral group in Alaska at the time mucking up the Native's efforts. Had we had that, now they had it down well, in the southeast. Well, I mean, Jack Hessian was actually, was obviously here at that point. But they weren't, they weren't, it, it, they really got galvanized and organized as they looked towards D2. Right. Uh, because otherwise we would have found trying to get implement regulations and everything else. And, and I'm not picking on the enviros, although I can if you want me to. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not picking on them. Uh, but as I said, I, I certainly could if you wanted me to. Uh, they do good things, they do bad things. Right. Uh, so do lawyers and so do doctors and, and uh, historians. <laughs> do respect to Mr. Mitchell here. Um, 
we would have had a, it would just would have complicated things incredibly because there would have been one more legal, political factor in there. Well, if you look at the, if you look at the uh, aggravation that went into the submerged lands fix, I mean, I mean, I was involved in that, and that went on for six or seven years with members of Congress saying the native community is right, you know, here's this technical problem, here's the fair way to fix it, but no, we're not going to fix it because of, of the politics with the environmental community, you know, and it was, it was preposterous, you know, the amount of delay and money uh, that was involved in, in a very arcane you know, public land issue that should have been taken care of in, which first of all never should have become an issue, and it should have been taken care of in about five minutes, but for for that intrusion into the process. And the environs were more organized too down in southeast, but that was because they had their own, they had been active for, for more active for a period of time. Uh, also, in terms of getting away from the, from the implementation of ANCSA as ANCSA, up in Nana area, of course, there weren't environmental. I mean, there, it was too isolated in those days. They didn't. Bit, as long as we're on tape, I tell you my favorite Jack Hessian story. Sure. As you well know, because you were involved so heavily involved in the D2 legislation. It, with your efforts and Mr. Shively's efforts, Nana was able to select, get some legislation in D2 bill that allowed them to select Red Dwarf, which is a lead zinc deposit north of, uh, northeast of uh, Kivalina and uh, due north of Noatak. And to get the ore body, well, after we selected it, eventually deal was worked with Kamenko that they were developing. To get the ore to the coast, there were two ways, and one was to come through the Kruzenstern monument, and the other was to go west away from the monument, and the two were hardly comparable. The way west was much more environmentally contained greater environmental damage potential because it crossed several more streams and much more costly because it was longer and the surface and all the rest would be coming in. Third, when you got out to the coast, it wasn't a good place to be because it was on that little bulge that's out there and so you're more exposed to winds and currents and all the rest and the ice flows. Better route was to come down through the monument, and of course, this was considered to be anathema to the environmentalists. Uh, and up in the middle of the monument, there was a little lake called Mud Lake. It's Mud Lake. And you may recall that back in the late '60s, I believe it was, there was a Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court threw out an environmentalist lawsuit 
maybe it was a Sierra Club and, and the uh, Secretary of Interior that was uh, Roger C.B. Morton at the time. I believe the lawsuit. Well, yeah, by the, on the standing issue? Right. right. I mean, by the time it got up to the right. Supreme Court, Morton. So it's something right. versus Morton. Right. And it's, Sierra you know, Club, what, doesn't it? Yeah, and it said, you know, it, it, the only way you can bring this lawsuit is if you use this. I think one last cup and then cut me off even if I beg you. So that you have to actually use it. You can't. Somebody in this lawsuit right. has to have actually right. said it's going to harm you. Right. So, <laughs> so don't beg me. <laughs> so. Uh, Could you make some? Yes. So, <laughs> Mr. Hessian, in anticipating that they're going to probably file a lawsuit, <clears throat> gets himself out to Mud Lake with his collapsible kayak <laughs> and he paddles around the lake he can't get back to civilization and Kaminko has to go out with a helicopter <laughs> bring him back and he won't he won't mention that story you forget about things like that <laughs> it's my favorite story when I found out about it <laughs> well um, unfortunately I only brought one tape with me, and I'm sure you've got other stuff to do as well, but uh, one of the things I did want to get on tape before it runs out is if if you had, uh, say, your two, th two or three things that you thought was the best thing about the Claims Act, and then a couple things you think that, after having worked with it for a quarter of a century, were probably the biggest sort of policy mistakes or, or what we what we should have done differently with the benefit of hindsight? Um, you know, those are questions I probably would like to have a little more time yeah. to think about, but let me give well, you... We can do this again, too, sometimes. Yeah. Okay, well, let yeah. me give you my, my, my first response, and I'll go to the negative side first. Um, I, the Settlement Act, has, before it finally got passed, and I understand all of the politics, but it should have been vetted, as it were. They should have given the Act the final version to a couple top-notch lawyers who knew corporate, a couple top-notch lawyers who knew, with no, people who had no interest in the Settlement Act, and a couple accountants, and maybe an engineer, and, and not lock them in the room together, but put them down and say, from a technical standpoint, we're not talking about policy, where are we going to have problems? And the reason I mention that is, here's Section 7i, God knows what, and one sentence could have eliminated all of that. One sentence in, in Section 7, I could have, could have wiped out how many millions, millions of dollars spent on lawyers, spent on accountants, administrative expenses because of CEOs, or their administrative expenses because they're going to fly here and there, acrimony, hard feelings, bitterness. And there are other provisions in the Act where if people had sat down, technicians had sat down, they had the background and, and, and worked this through. 
Well, well look at sand and gravel. Look at sand four, and gravel. Fourteen F is my favorite. Right. So, and we've know, all got we've all right. got our favorites. Right. So, excuse me. So, that's that's one of the one of the things um, from a negative side. Um, I guess a realization, and again, this is a political problem. But there was no, and I don't know how you would have, you know. To, I guess you shouldn't pick out a fault if you don't have some way to suggest it ought to be corrected. Um, but it was a, in many ways it was a disastrous mistake to deal with the villages the way they did. We escaped that in Nana because of merger. I mean, if we hadn't had merger, all villages except Katsugu would be, if not gone today financially, they, might, they wouldn't be gone, I suppose. They'd still be there to collect their distribution right, through seven, seven eyes that right. came down to distribute out, but they would they would not exist as a as a as a village corporation. They would have no say in the way they have now in Nana because they're they're tied in. And that you know to to, to sit down and and say that. Uh, Here's 248 villages, and all of these 200, you know, they're all all created equal. And I, I don't know the answer, but there is an answer out there, I'm sure, and I'm sure you could craft one. But of course, as you know, the pressure was building to get it done, to get it done, because we had to get the oil out. Right. You know, I had to make all this big bucks up there for the companies. And, and then, of course, the natives were anxious and eager, understandably so. I mean, they don't even, they don't even denied how many centuries. It was, you know, they could... You, you you can you can fault the natives if you want by by by, by maybe taking less than they could have gotten if they waited a little longer but uh, you know there's my God there's a point in time when you say enough's enough and I think that a lot of and then also there's a point in time where you get scared you say well Jesus you know I don't know who knows what might happen next year you know what about how is it in your judgment particularly after you've worked with tribes in the lower 48 you know. Paul Curtin told me that uh, early on in the, in the implementation phase in the Interior Department that he was in meetings where at the time, you know, remember Martin Seneca, of course? Mm -hmm. that Martin Seneca would stand up in front of, in these implementation meetings in the Interior Department and basically say, according to Curtin almost literally, that we've got to make this thing fail because if in fact they, the Congress, gets away with what they've done to Alaska Natives, they're going to impose the same kind of terminationist system on us. And, and Curtin alleged, you know, to, to the extent Paul's a trustworthy uh, informant on this, that there was a lot of resistance on the BIA corridor because of how radically Hanks had departed from from, you know, tribal sovereignty and trust land and all the rest of the stuff. That I, I, I would have to, uh, well, I mean, I, I have no idea what went on internally, uh, but 
based upon all of my experience, and, and you know, I continued to be very active in Lower 48. I was I, I was constantly working basically out of the buildings area office, the tribe that did were in Montana and Wyoming. But I had exposure to a lot of other areas, California, uh, the area office out in Sacramento, Portland area office, because I did a lot of work. And, and, and again, most of my work was, was uh, uh, with the BIA uh, or the area office solicitors who did not only BIA work, but other work. Uh, and I don't ever remember anybody questioning uh, the wisdom from a standpoint of reservation versus non-reservation. Uh, now Seneca Martin would be speaking from the point of view of somebody who was an Indian, uh, but I don't have any recollection of any of the Indians that I dealt with. And of course they weren't, the Settlement Act, basically they understood it to be a, a lot of money and a lot of land given to the, and there weren't going to be a reservation. You know, yep. I mean, the Indians, uh, reservation Indians are schizophrenic about being reservation Indians. And uh, they, it's a love-hate relationship. They love being wards and they hate being wards. They don't know how to deal with them. You know, they want freedom, but they don't want freedom. And I've been there with them. I mean, I've walked that walk with them and they never know how to get to the, and, and, and I've, I'm not blaming them. I don't, this isn't a. This is an explanation. I'm not. I'm explaining. I'm not right. judging. Um, I. I never saw anything. Um, indicate any. Uh, I saw the. I. I the, you know. I saw. I saw the snafu on enrollment. That was caused by the fact that they were going to enroll based upon the lower 48 template right. and this wasn't the lower 48 and that's the question of, of, of bureaucratic tunnel vision. Tunnel vision is not limited to bureaucrats but in any event that that was caused by that as much as anything. They didn't have, uh, they should have brought somebody in who said that enrollment really doesn't mean enrollment as you people talk about. We're going to bring in Joe Smith from the Census Bureau. You know, say, okay, we want to identify everybody <laughs> who has these qualifications and, and, and then have a process, and this is what we're going to do. And I know how you to figure out the degree of blood and blah, 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 and you can get it done. And then that was a, what, uh, and, that, and the time frame hurt them a little bit. They, they, you know, the bureaucracy is a behemoth that doesn't move very rapidly. And unfortunately, when it doesn't move, sometimes it steps on you, <laughs> it squashes you. Um, some of the good things, um, gave an opportunity to a lot of talented people to become the leaders that they had to, you know, develop their own leadership and, and, and you know, they're a legion of them. Serve a few bad apples. Where aren't the bad apples? I could point to a couple of partners of mine that I thought were... I'm not telling what year or where, but, <laughs> but uh, it, you know, it, it allowed I think it gave the people, a real a lot of them, a real sense of self-worth, whatever word you want to describe. When they were doing the 60-minute show on Nana, 
I was asked by somebody to compare the difference between the reservations and, and the situation up in Alaska under the Settlement Act. And, and I want to preface this by saying that, that a lot has changed now in the reservations. A lot of what, I, what I'm about to say I said is no longer true. But my response was, well, the difference is that reservation Indians have been emasculated by the system. And these people haven't been in this system. Sure, there's a lot of problems, and they got a lot of fights to fight in the West. But my God, it's their fights, and they're doing it on their own, on their own level, and, and that's what's important. Somebody else is not doing it for them. Somebody else is not telling them. Sure, they're being told, just like you and I are being told by the IRS, but they're not being told that you can't do this. I think that was really important, and I think it's important today that for all of the ups and downs. Um, and of course, one of the major problems has been taken care of, and that was the, uh, the uh, extending, you know, having the extending trust, I mean, the, the uh, stock, alienation. stock alienation. And that was a major problem, which got, which got taken care of. And I think, you know, we, we all have our views about any given congressman or senator at any given point in time, but I think that, that uh, the natives have been exceedingly well served by Ted Stevens. I mean, when push comes to shove, Ted knows who's out in the bush and who ain't and who needs help and, and corporations. And I just think he's been, and I'm not suggesting that, that you know, Senator Mikowski isn't, but you know, Ted was present at the birth so he has a he has a, a different feel than, than Senator Murkowski does, but that doesn't mean that Senator Murkowski isn't isn't you know doesn't have the same. Um, Ted's got this lengthy history, and all that's in Don's very good. I mean, again, these are not the, in, in comparison to odious. I just picked Ted because he's he's been the one who has always been there. If you will. Well, I, I don't want to chew my tape up on oh, it, sorry, but sorry. but uh, but uh, you know I've changed. <laughs> on Ted quite a bit over the years from from my early opinions and particularly having been involved in this research project that, that you know as early you know Ernest Greening in 1962 Peter John asked him to use Minto as a template for land plans and Ernest Greening said well why on earth would I give you 300,000 acres of land all you people would do would be to let it sit there and let moose graze on it, and and if I gave you 300,000 acres of land at Minto, it would retard the development of Alaska. Stevens, on the other hand, in his 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 Anchorage Chamber of Commerce Republicanism, was really very non-racist about it, in that he viewed quite correctly, as we've seen, that when you cut through the bullshit, that all natives are are people like everybody else, and Stevens says to himself, you know, if we give these folks land that has economic value in the marketplace, they're going to be as eager as anybody else uh, to participate in that marketplace, and obviously they don't have the skills internally to do it, so they're going to have to come to my friends at the Anchorage Chamber, you know, to help them 
do this, and it not only will it not thwart the development of Alaska from a Republican point of view, it will dramatically accelerate it. And of course, he's, he's, you know, hung up on the yardarm by Bob Atwood and the rest of, of his, <laughs> his, folks. his folks. But, you know, and, I, and I've seen stuff, memos from Stevens as early as 1960 when he was still in the solicitor's office about this. I mean, it's, um, it's pretty amazing. You know? Is it? Uh, it's it. <laughs> it's always so easy to to uh, jump on Ted because he's such an irascible personality. But when <laughs> we were in a meeting the other day, his office with some staff people on a unrelated, it had to do with the Kaminko Deepwater Port. John Schaefer was there, and the Kaminko people. And Jeff Stacer is about the who is the federal co-chair for the Denali yeah, right. Commission, and, and Jeff was there, and the guy that was going to take Jeff's place on, on these uh, Corps of Engineers issues. And remember John was talking about something about Ted, and, and uh, I can't remember what it was. And, and uh, you know, he was saying, oh, you know, well, Ted and I were working on this, and, and I said, and, uh, and you know, Stacia says something like, well, you know, Ted Zoo is doing the impeachment hearing, so we couldn't, Senator was busily listening to all this stuff, and there was, there was while they were, quote, debating in right. closed sessions, and, and I know we'll be sorry he didn't have a chance to see you folks, and, and John said, oh, you know, be sure, and I said, yeah, I said, you know, John, so it's nice to hear about you and Ted, but I said, I can remember one session where I literally started to get up because I thought I was going to have to stand between the two of you. I said, I can't have my client assault a senator. <laughs> and I said, you know, you're, you're this parachuting National Guardman, and Ted's not all that big. And I said, I thought the staff was going to come in. I mean, the crescendo of your voices. We walked out of there, and I'm shaking my head saying, Jesus, Jesus Christ. <laughs> there goes Nana's relationship with the one person. I said, you know, a couple, three months later, we're having another meeting. And John said, well, you know what happened? And he said, what? He said, well, it says about two months after that, I run into Ted and the Captain Cook, and he comes and he says, John, how come I never hear from you? And John said, well, you don't listen to me. He said, well, I listen to you. He says, I just don't like sometimes what you say. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, no, and the next minute I go back, and, and uh, you know, it's an issue where Ted's not going to blow his yeah. stack. And I've been in places where Ted blows his stack on Monday, and then on Tuesday, you know, right. it comes out just the way you you thought about him. You know, he goes back and thinks about it. And, and, uh, so, know. anyway, yeah, I, I guess the point of all that is that I well, I fully agree that he's he's uh, his involvement in all this thing has been uh, not only in terms of putting the deal together to begin. You know, technically Bartlett had not died; Bartlett had lived another three or four years. Uh, See, I wasn't aware of any of that because I didn't get involved until it was... Well, I mean, that's how Stevens yeah, stole, no. the, stole the seat, basically. Yeah. That's, and I've got, mm. I go on a great, I've got the only 40-page political biography of Ted Stevens that exists, and mm. it'd be very interesting to see what kind of a shitstorm that produced. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, but, mm. but yeah, but it would be quite different, but for, but for him, for that happening. Well. <laughs> okay, well, um, 
I appreciate uh, the time, and uh, if you think of other stuff, and you'd like to do this again sometime, I can get more of this before all the rest of us start going face first into the concrete, the better in terms of... What's interesting is it is that uh, you know most of this I haven't thought about for any particular reason. So sitting here talking to you, it, it's uh, you may recall I told you in the telephone. I said I can't remember any of that. Sure. But once you get yeah. talking and once you get somebody asking you a few questions, and then all these things <laughs> come flying back. Um, you have to laugh at a lot of them. You know, at the time you were tearing your hair or gnashing your teeth, and in retrospect, of course, they're not nearly as, as, as bad as you thought. And then sometimes they weren't nearly as good as you thought. And the things that you were gleefully rubbing your hands about, you now shake your head over. And I think that's a kind of a, a reflection about just how that act got implemented and what was involved. I mean, you, nobody really knew. And, um, I, I have to, I'll put this on the right, I had to fault one group, and I think the lawyers, it's a general proposition, there was a great amount of disservice done by the lawyers, and that's because the lawyers couldn't, as they can't, people will say, well, they can't from a professional standpoint, to which I respond, bullshit. Most of the lawyers couldn't or wouldn't step outside of being a lawyer and saying, you know, from a policy standpoint for these names, so that what you had was the lawyers for X demanding, asserting, as opposed to sitting down and saying, or telling their CEO, this is what you've got to do, or if you do this, you get a leg up from somebody else. Instead of sitting down and saying, Here's what's involved, and yes, you could possibly do this, and there is the possibility. And do you fully understand, however, there are implications that go beyond legal? And you don't have to face any liability because we can show a due diligence, and this can be an intelligent decision that we're not going to take this step because we feel. Um, there were there billable hours out there. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd be interesting to know how much never how much of never the dough went to lawyers and accountants. You know, particularly with all those village audits and all that stuff. And uh, never know. And and uh, you know, all you have to do is take a look at the at the. At after we got the 7i thing settled and take a look at, at the reporting on what was spent, or they have to report. Think of all the stuff that wasn't reported. Now, also, let's be honest, I'm sure there were, there were some non-7i <laughs> fees and expenses shoveled right. into 7i to, to increase right. the corporation's deductions, but basically, I suspect that's kind of the tip of an iceberg. Yep. Yep. Mm. Well, it's been fun. Okay, well, great. I'll uh, turn this tape off then. This is uh, tape number two from uh, whatever today is, the fourth of 
March. March 1999, talking with Richard Bannon, although we've now moved our venue from tape number one. And uh, I was just uh, <coughs> asking uh, about uh, the participation and influence, both for the good and the ill, of Paul Curtin which is K-I-R-T-O-N, who uh, was the uh, attorney in the solicitor's office in the Department of the Interior, who probably had more influence as a lawyer over the development of the initial uh, regulations dealing with implementing ANCSA. I guess, is that a fair statement, probably? Uh, certainly, as it, as it involves the land aspect. Uh, which, <laughs> which, which basically makes up, <laughs> well, one half of the settlement, as you, as you might say. Uh, I don't know um, what you have in other tapes, so I don't know what type of background might be uh, available. So I'll give on a little, curtain? On curtain. Yeah, I don't have anything. Well, I will, I will give a little background. Uh, uh, I met uh, Paul. Shortly after Anxia was started, he's uh, from Texas, uh, Texan lawyer, and he's blind. And uh, when I met him, uh, he had been at the department for a number of years. I have no idea if he, if his handicap uh, was from from birth or where. Actually, I've talked to him about that. It, it actually, I think it came uh, when he was a kid, like eight or nine years old. So I think he saw at one point, but he knew something about what was going on. So professionally, he 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 somebody who went to college and law school, blind, and, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure, based upon. Uh, Dissertory conversations I have with him that, that, that he practiced law, private practice for a while, because he had on more than one occasion referred to a divorce case he'd handled or things from the Shady. Paul had been involved in the mineral aspect uh, and land aspect at the department in the Swister's office before Hanks. When I first heard about him, uh, Anna, who I had been working with Chevron on a potential oil and gas, and uh, we asked the Chevron people, or they volunteered, we told them we were interested in finding somebody that could, that could give us some advice on not land management in terms of managing land, but land management in terms of establishing records and how we would go about this because Nana's there about to pick up two million plus acres of, of uh, subsurface, how many acres of surface. And this was before merger, of course, after merger, they got all that they ended up with over two million acres of surface and subsurface. And they gave us the name of a retired Chevron person who lived in the Washington area. Who, by the way, just died about a year and a half ago. Uh, after seeing a little bit in the, in the newspaper. 
now since we're talking, I can't think of his name, but I well, and we, we, he was happy to go to work, and he uh, came up to Kachibu once or twice, and even went out to one of the villages with us when we were having a meeting out in the village. And a couple different times when he was in Manchester town, he and his wife had us out to his house in Virginia. And he said that he'd always found when he was working with Chevron, or SoCal, I guess it was called in those days, that there was this attorney over in the Slicer's office called Curtin, who was blind, and, and, but who was very helpful. And that was the first time he heard the name, and he and said the fellow had a lot of experience in, in, uh, in uh, oil and gas and hard rock union as related to federal lands, which is where Chevron would get the And I assume that, as we had talked earlier today, since the Swisher's office didn't have the foggiest idea of what was going on, didn't even really know the bill was there, that every and while I had talked to the social solicitor Indian affairs, um, their dealings when it related to land matters for Indian was always a trust situation. So I assume that somewhere along the line somebody said, Well we got some legal problems developing on land and they don't fit under the trust aspect. Well, but we have some experience if not expertise. <laughs> and um, that's how Paul Curtin ended up with us. Who, and you've known him and, and worked with him and against him, I'm sure, a man of, of an incredible memory, tenacious memory, very bright, um, and also, uh, shortly after we had gotten started, we had a big uh, gathering, of, uh, this was long before murder, up in Alaska, I mean up in Kotzebue, and we worked it out, and you, you probably have, you know, I mean you know who Sue Wolf is, and, yeah, sure. and, and you folks probably know who Sue Wolf is. For the, for the tape, Sue Wolf uh, used to be the... One of the people at the uh, Alaska State <laughs> Office of the BLM who was during the early implementation period was in charge of making sense of shuffling the paper and getting conveyances of title out to everyone through the thicket of confusion and stupidity. <laughs> right. Well, we, we made arrangements in working with Sue Wolf and, 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 the, and we got range for Paul Curtin to come up to Kotzebue, and they worked out a trip where he was going to come to Alaska and meet a number of people, and so we had him come to Kotzebue, and he and Sue came to Kotzebue, actually, and we had people in from the villages who were involved, and then Nanopolk were there, and uh, we had a couple days of uh, uh, seminars on land selection, and from one session or two, Paul and, and Sue Wolf were there and talked about uh, conveyancing and the problems and everything that was involved. And, uh, and it was it was this one was a very good and, and, and very helpful. But thereafter, uh, it became something of a problem, this project, uh, dealing with Paul. 
And I can only describe the reason, I can only describe it this way, is that, that he really should have been a professor. Because every problem, every uh, he wasn't a problem solver, he was a problem creator. If you brought a problem to him, he didn't look for the answer. What he wanted to do, like a law professor, was to point out three more problems that might generate from this. And now, instead of having one problem, you've got potentially three problems. But each of those new three could possibly have three. So now we're talking about 18 problems. And he had the ability and the, the brains and also this tendency that you just never knew. I mean, he could drive this to infinity and you to distraction, <laughs> if not drive you crazy. And uh, it was, he became the incredible bottleneck. And of course, um, he had been something of, a, of an obscure, attorney in the department, which made him like almost all the other attorneys in the department, somewhat obscure. They, they labor in obscurity. And he wasn't obscure because he was Paul Curtin, he was obscure because of the job he had. And now suddenly, he's the focal point of this 40 million acres and, and you know, how many millions of dollars that are going to be in, and uh, all, all of these attorneys and all of these people. So you are catapulted from obscurity to an incredible point. And of course, he was one in the department that knew everything, so even within the department. So it wasn't only that, that uh, Art Lazarus of the world were asking to see him, but you know, the assistant secretaries were wanting to see him, and the bureau chiefs were wanting to see him, and, and, and it, it would be enough to turn anybody's head. But uh, again, um, I'll give you an example of uh, one of Paul's. It doesn't relate to, to uh, Nana, but it relates to Shiatica, which is a corporation for the village, uh, urban corporation in like Poland, the village of Sitka. And in the uh, D2 legislation, in the uh, National Interest Lands Conservation legislation that was passed in 1980, outside of Sitka, what they call Alice and Charcoal Islands. And they're really not islands anymore because they've been, uh, they've been joined by, they've been joined together by a causeway. I guess they still are islands. You still have to go across the bridge to get to them. And they were utilized by the army in the Second World War, and then they got taken over by the uh, by the federal government, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs utilized them, and they became part of the uh, Mount Edgecombe. BIA school, the boarding school, and then 
large portions of them got turned over and they were also utilized by the Bureau of Indian Affairs that used to handle health matters and then when the Public Health Service took over Indian Health, large portions of it was turned over to the Indian Health Service and then and then I have to just walk around the corner. Bureau School at Sitka was, was turned over to the state. It was no longer a big boarding school. And they had all these dormitories, which had been barracks from the Second World War. Well, turning all this aside, Chattanooga wanted to get part of it. Because they were, part of them were excess and not used, and, and ultimately they were all going to be excess, and this would be, be valuable property. So we worked out on the range with the uh, legislation where we would exchange, well they constituted about 15 acres, whatever it was, and we would relinquish 15 acres of our Catland Bay selections or whatever, in turn for getting these. And we would get them the parts that were no longer used we would get right now and the other parts one small bit of acreage was being utilized for a grade school and that school was destined to be closed down in like five years it was written into a plan they were going to build a new school and when that happened we would get that and we would get the building the rest and getting the buildings didn't mean anything they were all cold asbestos there yeah they were terrible pcps hanging right. out and all those marvelous <laughs> things well, in, in this was an, an 11th hour and 59th minute deal, and we finally got clearance, and, and uh, actually, if I remember correctly, there was a fellow named Don Mitchell who pulled the last string for us and said, uh, and working with Mr. Shively, he said, well, we got to have... I quickly called up and got to Warren Weathers on the line. He sent down the, the information he needed, and he sent down the wrong section number. So the bill goes through, and we get finished, and lo and behold, we don't have an exchange for Alice and Charcoal Island. We have an exchange for a small section of the outskirts of the downtown port of Sitka, plus the monument, the little park there with all the right, monuments. Right, yeah, with the, with the totem pole. Totem pole, I can't think of now what right. the name is. Totem pole park. Totem yeah, but it's called, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a federal right. park National service park. park. Right. Guy with a range of hats. Yeah, that's what we now own, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we, we get ready and we say, well, right, so it's time to get our patent. So, we, we go to the BLM and to, to get a patent and the... You still think you're getting a patent for the... Well, you're right. Bureau, Bureau, Bureau comes back to us and they say, wait a minute, we got a little problem. The, 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 the legal descriptions were. So we said, okay, um, just give us the right patent. They said, well, we don't know what to do. So it ended up on Paul Curtin's desk. So we go to talk to Paul Curtin and he said, well, we can't give you a patent because this is what... And I said, well, that, you know, it does create a problem because land title is land title. It's not something you just... So, I, not knowing what to do, scratched my head and I said, I know what to do. So I got one of, one of my bright young associates 
and I said, you know, here's a situation. Go take a look and see if you can find any answer to something like this. And lo and behold, the associate comes back with a Supreme Court case in which a patent, not a land patent, but a patent issued by the patent office for an invention, had been challenged by an individual. And they'd gone all the way through the court system, patent office, and then the court, and the court system had ruled against the person who made the challenge on the grounds that this patent belonged to the defendant. Sent it back, and I know nothing about how the patent system works, but the fellow was obviously unhappy with the court's decision, so he filed another lawsuit, which apparently he was able to do under, even though we would think he he filed another lawsuit, and I can't remember now, that went all the way back up to the Circuit Court of Appeals again before it slapped down, but which time the guy that owned the patent, because he can't do anything with it because it's under challenge and he can't develop, goes to Congress, and Congress confirms in him this is his patent, and what Congress says is, so-and-so's got patent number 3478 and make widgets. It's his patent, he can go forward. Unfortunately, his patent wasn't 3478 to make widgets, it was 3477 to make widgets. Aha! Uh -huh. Another lawsuit gets up to the Supreme Court, or the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals said, enough is enough. <laughs> Out of here. That's his patent. And it will be recognized as 3478, not 347, or whatever. Even though that's not what the statute says. Even that's not what the statute says, because we all know what was intended. So I go to Paul and I say, you know, here it is, Alice in Charcoal Island, la-da-da-da-da. Two years later, we work out a <laughs> land exchange with Mr. Curtin before we could get our patent. Oh, we couldn't possibly, because this is a land record, and that's different than the patent. And, and, and then he had all of these, and this was just, he would not let a problem go. And that is because he didn't solve problems, he created problems, and it was, it was like a, it was a combination of an intellect that, that worked that way, and, you know, um, he just was there and that's the way he was going to do it, and uh, that's an example of what it, what it was, and it, 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 it truly slowed things down. Now, on a personal basis, I always liked the guy. And uh, uh, he wanted to be helpful, but his concept of being helpful was not one of solving problems. Did he have a piece of the controversy over easements? Do you recall? Were you involved in any of that? We, I don't recall. We never had, we, we being nano. And I use the we in that just to get it We we really left things like the easement problems to the AFN to fight 
because we weren't in an easement situation that we really worried about. We're sufficiently isolated, and and we didn't want any more easements. We did. We didn't want any easements. We could. You know, nobody wanted their land burdened by them. But we weren't in a. We weren't worried about. Easements. They didn't affect us as they did a lot of other of the corporations. And uh, for example, down in, in the Shattuca country, and our easements were a big thing down there. But by the time we were doing it in D2, that issue had been pretty well, pretty well settled. But he was involved in the easements. He was dispute. He was involved in the uh, submerged lands, and he was involved in the navigable water. Very, very much involved. All of which, again. We weren't. We were affected, but we weren't affected so dramatically that we got involved. And we knew that there were a lot of good lawyers uh, fighting the fight for the natives. So we turned our resources someplace else and, and our attention someplace else. But I do know that. that, uh, uh, that and I do know uh, that when uh, Carter was elected and there was a change in the administration that the native community approached assistant secretary of land who had a background uh, guy martin and in response to their complaint that, that things weren't moving and that there were a lot of problems in getting things done and that their view of, of the bottleneck as it came back from the people who dealt with was, was in Paul's office. And he was effectively removed from that position and that things then, but there were a lot of other things speeded up and it wasn't just Paul, but because Guy Martin had an elastic background, and he came in with a commitment. And so what happened was for the first time you had somebody who was in charge as assistant secretary of land who wanted to do something and understood the native's frustration and the problems and, and, and he gave it a priority so it wasn't just the fact that they took one person out of the loop to try and, and do a whole system and a lot better he brought in some people from Alaska to help him Don Argett Singer and others and they came in and they had a background in analysis and things moved um, and then when when the administration changed again, Paul came back in the loop, and that's when I ran into him. Right. Um, right. Downtown, he said, we always told him we were happy to take it. We just didn't think he'd give us a patent for that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I can, for the purposes of the tape, I can shed some light on this because I've talked to Guy Martin about it at length. And, uh, and uh, by 77, when... <coughs> When the Carter administration came in, uh, out of 44 million, very few acres had actually been conveyed, relatively speaking. And so Martin's first real policy initiative inside his secretariat was to launch a big basic review of the whole subject as to why this was happening. But, but that was his first act, according to Guy. His second act was to bring John Leshy, who is now the solicitor for the Department of the Interior, but who was his uh, associate solicitor uh, 
whatever that corridor is called. Whatever that corridor is called in the solicitor's office for guys for public plan management. Yeah, something like that. Right. Well, anyway, guy. According to the guy, guy told me that he called Leshy into his office shortly after assuming office himself and said, "I don't want Paul. I never want to be in a meeting." about implementing ANCSA with Paul. And that doesn't mean he doesn't have good ideas. And so I want you to go find out what he thinks about stuff. And then you come to the meeting. <laughs> and you can tell me you know, what the solicitor's views of this, that, or the other thing is about get, breaking this ANCSA conveyance thing. But I don't want Paul himself in the meeting for precisely the reason that you identified earlier, because we'd have to listen to 12,000, you know, have, have any of us considered the potential effect of the partial revocation of public land order 1932 that was enacted in July of 1947? And the answer, of course, is no one had, because he's the only guy on earth that knows anybody. The, 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 the man <laughs> absolutely incredible. To this day, he works part-time. Right. To this day, I could call him up, I mean, we could put the tape on pause, I could go up and call him up and I could say, Paul, could you tell me, is there a Ninth Circuit case that deals with, or I could make some type of a problem, and if there was anything remotely related to it, He'd say, oh yeah, I think you want to look at, and you want to check, and you might call so-and-so, and he was just incredible. A fountain of information, but as you just said, um, was never departmentalized for a given problem. Listen, why don't we, I'm going to go call the hotel just to see if these guys... Right, the only reason I raised Paul Curtin was because I think anybody who's... If anybody ever does sit down and try and you know, do something seriously academic about the implementation of ANSA, that you really need to go, if Paul is still alive and kicking whenever you do that, you need to go talk to him, and if he's not, you need to investigate his files, because that's, it seems to me, that actually, the, the, all of the Interior Department files would be very fascinating investigation because there was, um, as is the case with any major piece of legislation that passes, it ends up shuffled off to a, one of the departments to handle. I don't care whether it's Superfund or whether it's the, the tax cut, uh, the IRS, uh, there's always individuals within the bureaucracy whose own personal view as to what life ought to be doesn't correspond with what that legislation is and so you find a whole lot of things being sidetracked, sabotaged, and things don't get done and you can't figure out why or some things get done quicker than others possibly the things you don't want to get done. 
uh, happen sooner than later, and, and uh, if you've got a sufficient background, the person that does it goes in and looks at those files and probably come up and say, gee, this is real interesting. You know, here was deputy assistant secretary who kept saying no to something, or here was a deputy assistant secretary who kept saying yes. I mean, here was some guy pushing to get something done because he wanted to help the natives. Even though it wasn't in his bailiwick, he understood things ought to be done. And then taking a look at the D2 legislation would be fascinating because that has such a tremendous impact on the natives and it was such a, such a controversial fight between the conservationists, the, the native community, trying not to get in between the conservationists and, and the state and the question of development. And the bureaucrats trying to play one off against the other. But that's a, that's a source, just the archives of, of the department. Uh, and as you said, individuals like Paul Curtin, uh, Guy Martin, any of those people that were, that were at one time or another were players, but certainly people like Paul who were there at the very start. And uh, as you say, if he's still alive, good Lord, uh, his memory is such that uh, fellow you'll have to take a long, a gross, a, a gross of a gross of long, long tapes <laughs> for each session. Actually, one of my one of my greatest compliments is a mouthpiece. You know, I, I showing how far the circle has turned. You know that I was retained by Ted to file an amicus brief in the Right, right. And my phone goes off. And it's Kurt, who never called me at home before, ever. And Paul had never, in all these years, had ever called me at home. And he called me at home to tell me that he had awarded me the best Venati brief. He wanted me to know that the only. Okay. The only brief that he, Paul Curtin, thought was, was worth its salt in the whole sad affair was me. And, uh, you know, I had that conversation and then I thought up that I was coming up and I went, wow, that's amazing that Paul Curtin was but, uh, so anyway, that's Paul Curtis. Unless you thought you were doing this history, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Cynical lawyer that I am, right? And, uh, the other thing I maybe it would be interesting to talk about, uh, perhaps even from the Nana side as an example, is that uh, one of the things that that I do discuss a little bit in this first draft of this epilogue is, again, the difference between rhetoric and, and what's actually happened. And we talked, I think, earlier today about the, the, the demand, the universal shareholder demand for dividends. But the other thing that, that has struck me is that if you, if you go back and you look at the, at sort of the, the political rhetoric of the enactment of the Claims Act, you know, take my land, take my life, natives love the land more than life itself, uh, and there's even, you know, AFN memos that were sort of briefing packet lobbying memos 
that were sent to the Senate from AFN about, you know, uh, to the state of Alaska, land is merely a commodity, while to Alaska Natives it's some sort of spiritual, you know, the normal stuff. But if you then look at the performance of corporations, that uh, for reasons that I, I think, frankly, are quite correct, to the corporation, when given the opportunity, they have actually used their land rights yeah. as land being a commodity. I mean, the, you know, taking selection rights that might have been around man villages and moving into Red Dog. Uh, the, the fog neck, Eddie Weinberg, the, the giving up all the land around Chandler Lake and Brooks Range by ASRC in order to get under the coastal plain. And then my favorite, of course, is the famous, uh, ultimately dead in the water, mega Anwar land trade of, what, 87? Remember when, when they got a whole consortium, there were 18 corporations, regional and village alike, from Chalista Village Corporations to Doyon, that we're going to give away, we'll give back like a million acres of land in exchange for nothing other than, than oil and gas uh, leasing. And, and of course, then the best, of course, being Siri, who fully understood that it really, the land really was a commodity and, and took a very disadvantageous situation in terms of the land selection rights and turned it into a virtual money pot. And sorry, I was wondering if you had a view about any of well, I do. I, the, the Siri, I'll start on the reverse side. The, the Siri situation, of course, is they, the Siri is the least land-founded corporation of all the corporations because of its nature, where, it is and where they all come from. And so from Siri's standpoint, if they were going to have any, whatever land rights they had, were basically, as you know, mountaintops and all the rest, and, and didn't mean anything to the Siri people anyhow, because most of them were, were, by this time, more anchorageites than, than, than anything else. Some of the other ones I don't know enough about the, the, uh, the individuals involved to, uh, to discuss, um, I think in part turned upon the group itself, and it varied from, from group to group, uh, corporation to corporation. Um, I know Nana's view has always been exceedingly uh, reluctant to ever give up anything in terms of, of making an exchange to pick up Red Dog, you know, a few acres here and a few acres there, didn't make any difference to Nana because <clears throat> he could slice it off some end that was <clears throat> far away from the village. <coughs> Excuse me, what Nana did was before the selection process started, sat down, and again, I use the we only because it's easier right, to talk right. that way, but right. John Schaefer and, 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 and I was part of it, but I, I sat down and put together a matrix that would, that would be the guide for land selection. 
and development uh, was in the matrix, but it wasn't anywhere near the top uh, economic development use. And the first, <clears throat> the primary and the, 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 the base of the matrix was, was subsistence. And then it was historical use, was village needs for expansion. And because of the way the Nana region is, is set up, um, we weren't faced with the situation of having to make a decision about whether or not this choice piece of land would, would throw the matrix out of whack. Um, well, we had so much land and the interest for the oil and gas people, in fact, we they would have been delighted to, to have a lease on all the land. We limited them to over 500,000 acres. Um, did that for a variety of reasons, but one was basically a business reason that they discovered oil and gas in some place in this 500,000 acres, and another 1,500 would be worth a lot more, even, you know, lower might not be anything out there, people would pay a lot more and we could have more competition and all the rest. Um, but I guess my, my point though is that to the best of my knowledge, there has not been a village or regional corporation in 20 plus years that when an economic opportunity associated with land sales or land trades has presented itself that any corporation has ever said no, has never done anything other than explore and attempt to take advantage of that opportunity. And, I, and I, as I said, I, I view that as, as, as okay. Yeah, but, in, but in terms of the sort of the disparity, the, 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 this we had, we had. Uh, I see what you're, what you're We we had um, a uh, temporary one. Uh, there was at one time that the the, uh, the uh, <coughs> excuse me. We did it by by a quote informal vote because we did not want to have a. We didn't want to have a, an issue presented to the annual shareholders meeting and have them take a vote on it and then have it, there it is in, in the record, and that would preclude people, they'd look at it and say, well, there's no need to go talk to them, but we, we took an, uh, an informal vote after they got, uh, after uh, uh, we picked up uh, the Red Dog lands about whether they wanted to have mining development and the vote was no, we don't want it. And it was that way for about four years or, or longer. And as things developed, and, and so Nana did not uh, go out and, and look for somebody to develop Red Dog. We figured it's there. And, uh, and several years later, um, the uh, when 
a number of companies that come uh, was raised again and, and been done as an informal matter. And it was changed. They, 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 they changed. And I think in part uh, they changed because time had passed and, and uh, they weren't so afraid of the possibility of development. But I don't think Short of something really disastrous, people would say, God, nobody in their right mind would do that. I think you're probably right. And I think Nana would, would, would uh, go ahead for development. I don't think Nana would, would uh, get rid of one. Uh, or at least they wouldn't have 15 years ago. They might not. They would exchange it happy to develop it and I don't know depending on the right circumstances they might well say well you know do we need two plus million acres and we can you know what is what is 20,000 acres that's so far away from any village and nobody ever goes there anyhow um, and if it can bring some economic benefit to the shareholders well, why not I certainly agree with you. I don't. I don't think that that uh, that uh, if you hang on to a piece of property, uh, unless it truly is, you know, if it's if it's sacred Blue Mountain, uh, that's one thing. And certainly, if it's prime subsistence or or if it's you know, key to your life, but uh, other reasons. Uh, Anything wrong, uh, with it, uh, right. And it, it, you know, that that kind of, of, of expression of participatory self-interest. So back to what we were talking earlier today about Ted Stevens's insight into all of this um, is certainly, you know, letting giving people an opportunity to participate in the development of the Alaska economy is better than the economy developing without them. Absolutely. You know, and, Absolutely. Um, you know, it's going to happen. Might as well happen with, with their participation. Um, Russ, what do you think? Is there any other subject matter that are worth kicking around about the subject? Or? Right, you know, why don't you turn it off? You know, Donald, the tape was off. We were talking about things that didn't really relate. But there is something I'd like to put on the on the tape, and that is that, that for, for a little bit of background, when I started working for, for NANA, actually the Northwest Alaska Native Association, slightly before, a year or so before the Settlement Act was passed, in work form is kind of a misnomer because everybody that was working to get the Settlement Act was so far along that when I got hired and brought in, uh, there was little that I could, could do other than sit and watch. By the way, just did they have actually money? No. To, I mean, they didn't have, I didn't think that NANA, I mean, the Northwest Native Association had anything other than a letterhead until no, In fact, um, um, we ended up having uh, about 
$10,000 worth of expenses before the Settlement Act. Pre-Settlement Act expenses, basically they were tied up. Uh, we're, not we're talking about expenses and uh, not fees. What we would have gotten in fees, maybe it was like $10,000 with the expenses and fees. It wasn't a lot. Uh, probably about $10,000, $12,000. Uh, remember, I came up, flew up once. So there was one airfare, round trip airfare. And when it came time to make applications for fees and expenses before the uh, court of claims, I told the partners. That based upon the way it was working out, we would end up getting out of our twelve thousand dollars or whatever it was. We'd probably get two thousand dollars because of the way they had allocated amongst everybody else. And I said, you know, we can spend ten thousand dollars to get two thousand dollars out of the ten thousand dollars. And they groused and said, you're absolutely right. But what I wanted to say was that. The, I basically commuted to Alaska from 1971 until 76, and then from 76 to say 79, it was much less of a commute. And 76 happened, it was 75, 76, John Shively came on board, and that took me off the hot spot of being that person that there was somebody else now. And I was doing a lot of things I was not qualified to do business-related type stuff I was asked to do, and I claimed to my, you know, but somebody had to help me, so I did. I met both Nana and non-Nana, other corporations, other lawyers, other, other account, I mean, accountants, a lot of bureaucrats, state and otherwise, and we tend to focus on either the outstanding person, we tend to focus on on <laughs> the real disaster, but you know, 90% of the people that I met and worked with were really fine people. And I, you know, I think that, that people forget that. I mean, they may not have been educated, they may not have had uh, sophistication, or they may have been overeducated. Uh, they went on both, but basically a fine group in those initial stages, uh, and I think that's something that, that gets lost because time goes by and then you say, well, geez, why didn't they do it that way? And people don't understand the problems they're working with and all the rest, and, and, and if mistakes were made, then mistakes were made. But the people, uh, most of the people, uh, really find people, and that is true. Well, you know, one, in, in that regard, I didn't appreciate you know, what, what I would call sort of my best years and all that was to say about 77 to about 86 maybe from the beginning of D2. Until, of course, it was long over, as is normally the human condition, was the, the uh, sort of the relentless fragmentation, both politically and economically, of the Native leadership conflict during that 
as opposed to when you look now at how much you know sort of the ideology has now gotten in to the middle of stuff and when you look at these how hopeless say the AFN board is now with 36 people on it and half of them have some level of information and half of them have a different level of information and everybody you know and and that was so different as I look back on it that, that tenure that my first sort of tenure window which obviously was coming off ten years prior to that than most of what you were involved in. Do you have a, a view or a perception of, of, and particularly how it relates to Indians in the lower 48? Well, I, I, what's interesting is that, that uh, you know, if you take a map of Alaska and you slap it down, they're always doing this right, and they slap the map of Alaska down on the map of the United States, and they say, my God, see how big that is. And it is big. And, and, uh, and you mentioned the D2, and you say, I saw somewhere in between, you know, 75, 76, 77, 78, somewhere in there, I started to see the, uh, I was going to say disintegration, and that's not, I, I started to see a, a, a change from the AFM that was there earlier, from the corporate, where they weren't the, the, the same unity, the same pulling together, and then the D2 came along, and there was another crisis and they rallied. And they're all back down in the lower 48. They never had anything. They, they, the Indians got a problem that they, 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 they can't rally themselves. They, they, they'll have a big meeting. And, and you know, the, the, uh, the uh, National Association, you know, the Indian group will get together. NCAI. NCAI. And they'll get together and. Uh, well, and then they'll come to Washington, but they don't have 12 corporations, regional corporations, not all the village corporations. They'll come to Washington, and it's a disaster in the sense that they, they can't deliver a unified message. They deliver a unified message and they undercut themselves somehow. And that's because they have such different diverse problems. I mean, if you're coming out of, uh, you know, if you're a Hopi, um, you, you know, Pine Ridge is Pine Ridge, and never the twain shall meet. And while you can be a Inupat or you can be an Aleut, the D2 problem is a unifying problem. And that's what was what I saw. And, and I suppose now, when they did it with the subsistence, when they when they vote no, you know, right, to vote yes, you had to vote the wrong way. Right. It sounded <laughs> oh, I like that. It seems very confusing, but you vote yes because that's a no vote in terms of, and that pulled people together. I don't, and um, it would be interesting to see, but I hope the occurrence doesn't happen. <laughs> but if it would be interesting if if if, if a, a major problem would would they coalesce and, and, and come together again the way they did in the past or would they not? And as I say, I hope that the, hope there isn't any reason for them to have to do that. So there may well be where you think But well, I mean one of Shively's views on that though is that is that not only 
did they need external threat in order to be cohesive? But that, that during, say, that first, you know, six, 66 to, to uh, really even 85, so let's through the 1991 amendment, uh, the, the group was small enough, in a way, as to be manageable. I mean, you, you, I mean today, if, D, if D2 were starting over today, it would be, it would be anarchy. And, you know, the, politi the native political system would never just cut me and Shively loose to go off and do subsistence and come back with, do the, do the best you can and come back with whatever you can get. There would be meetings with, there would be, everybody's got a lawyer now. Well, and, 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 you know, and the, the, the smallness of the group gave you, gave the natives the ability to I'll use a mixed metaphor. At once, they could circle the wagons to keep other people from getting in. Not only in other native groups, they could circle the wagons so that the X, Y, and Z group representing so-and-so, like a mining interest, couldn't go over and talk to this corporation and split them off. And at the same time, to mix my metaphor, group was small enough that they could have a real sharp pointed spear and they could run with it. And that wouldn't happen now, because just as you say, the group is so big that, that it would be so easy for the, the enviros, or one group of the enviros, for the miners, for the sovereignty, and everything gets split off. And, and what you've got is, you say, anarchy as, as opposed to a cohesive and of course, that's that's also part of progress. Right. And obviously, there's more people. And when there's people, yeah, they've got an involvement, and, and they should be heard. It's not a. Right. So no, I I agree. It cuts cuts both ways. But uh, you know, even uh, even really up until the late '80s, I don't think I ever attended a AFM board meeting about anything important that was not preceded by a day or two earlier a sort of pre-meeting of five or six or seven people, you know, in Janie Lee's office from Frank Ferguson when he was president and Morris when he was president. And we would sit there and we'd have, you know, these incredibly raging arguments. But at the end of that, you know, th there was never there was never an AFM board meeting that was a free a free fall. You know, where you went in there and you didn't know what the answer was. And and now today, you know, that's the way it works. You go in there and somebody says, "Well, say I've got a good idea. Why don't we all declare war in Bolivia?" And somebody goes, "Oh, that's a good idea." And before you know it, there's a resolution declaring war in Bolivia, and poor Julie Kitts is supposed to go out and. And start getting ordinance lined, you know, uh, because that kind of not uh, even conspiracy no longer exists. Maybe I'm even getting nostalgic. Yeah. <laughs>
but it, you know, it was it was anti-democratic, but it was pragmatically sort of operation. Practical democracy. <laughs> Practical democracy. <laughs> 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 